Thank you so much for tuning in to the Varying Viewpoints podcast series, sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Bianca Neal, visiting scholar at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice in the Rutgers Graduate School of Education and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Today's podcast episode is a special highlight on a changemaker in higher education. This scholar practitioner uses their work to impact the greater community by merging scholarship and practice. Our special guest today is Dr. Ashford Hansard, Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Organization, Workforce, and Leadership Studies at Texas State University. Prior to joining Texas State, Dr. Ashford Hansard worked for 13 years in high tech. Dr. Ashford Hanser's work focuses now on broadening participation of women of color and historically underrepresented minorities in the U.S., as well as a focus on STEM and computing workforce ecosystems. Dr. Ashford Hansard, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and feel free to call me Dr. Chate. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Chate. Well, before we begin, I would love to hear more about your research and what really sparked your research agenda. That's a great question. I go back to my formative experiences as a little girl growing up in the backwoods of Tallahassee, Florida. And during that formative time, my great grandmother, my mother, um, really molded into me a sense of strong faith, strong um, values, Christian values, and, and those have stood with me since that time. And as I look at my research and being an African-American woman myself, I often reflect on my own experiences being a first-generation college graduate. In addition to as well, having a Bachelor of Science degree in computer science after really um, persevering and demonstrating a level of resiliency in high school when my high school guidance counselor told me that I was not college material. And so I understand firsthand um, the experiences of African-American women, women of color, in the computing education pipeline. I also gained 13 years of work experience as you talked about as well in the introduction in the tech or high tech knowledge industry. And so I also understand firsthand what it's like to work in the technology and computing workforce. And so my personal experiences in education as well as in the workforce inform and have informed my research agenda focused on how do we increase the number of historically marginalized women and my and individuals from my minority groups to persist to enroll and persist in the STEM and computing workforce pipeline. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate you sharing your story as well, because it provides some depth and insight into a reality 
And I love how you were able to bridge your personal experience and use it into your practice to be able to help uh, empower others as well as diversify the STEM and computing workforce in general. Can you elaborate on the people or experiences that influenced your work to merge scholarship and practice? So I know you had an experience from what you shared and, and really a lifetime that we could only talk about in, in moments, but you also mentioned um, bringing forth an agenda to make a change. And so what was the light bulb moment where you realized that you not only wanted to change something in your own sphere, uh, in your own path, but you wanted to bring this into the field of academia. Yeah, so when I look back on my own life experiences, and I've mentioned already uh, my great-grandmother, um, also my mother also um, really fits in that as well. And their influences on me um, as a little girl. And I watched my mom work in the field of social services and pour into others, um, even to the point of sometimes neglecting herself. She, I truly believe, is a change maker. And because of her, um, watching her pour into others and also being alongside her, I know no other thing but to pour into others. That, is, that has become a way of life in terms of making a difference in my community. And so as a scholar activist, it is important for me to be able to not only produce knowledge for, the, um, for scholarship purposes, but also to transform that scholarship into action um, where it transforms or it it serves as a catalyst for um, driving systemic change in communities. I know that that's a bold statement and it's very um, aggressive, but I firmly believe that over time that part of my life's mission is to identify transformative solutions that have the potential to transform communities. I don't have much to say to that except for, wow, I think that's amazing. I'm so glad to, to know you. Um, and I know your mother personally. And so when you speak of her, I know that she set such a wonderful model. She's still wonderfully um, serving, giving, contributing back to the community. And it's interesting to see how you're able to mirror, mirror in some ways her change-making attributes in a completely different field. As you mentioned, she was in um, social services and working with the community firsthand one-on-one -on -one, and really impacting you know, even cities and, and states, the state of Florida. Um, but I love that you have been able to contextualize your change-making efforts into a new arena and the one that you have influence in. Now, you, you speak boldly as a scholar activist, but you also have results. So let's talk about your NSF grants. I know you received two NSF grants. Uh, NSF includes an NSF career grant 
And can you tell us a little bit about that work and what that entails? Yeah, so my NSF includes grant uh, was my very first funded project. Uh, initially, I have to give credit as well um, as I've given credit to my mom, Bonnie James, and my grand, great-grandmother, Ruby Johnson. I have to give credit as well to Dr. Gladys Kersaint, who gave me my first opportunity to work as a NSF project manager at the University of South Florida while I was pursuing my PhD. And through that initial work, I was able to gain experience, uh, first of all, working on an NSF-funded project, um, a large-scale mixed methods project, um, and also being able to publish off of that work um, under her tutelage. Um, it was a formative experience as well for me as a scholar. Um, and so through that experience, I knew coming into my career as, a, as I was pursuing a tenure track assistant professorship, I was already writing my first NSF grant. Uh, I, I turned in my dissertation and then began to write my first NSF grant. I was fortunate to have been um, already hired <laughs> and extended an offer um, six months prior to graduation. So I knew before I graduated, I was going to be at the university, at Texas State University um, in starting my first tenure track um, <clears throat> professorship. And so I began to write, the first award was not funded. Um, the first grant I submitted was not funded, but the second or third grant, I forget how many I wrote, I've written, I've written a lot, <laughs> but I was finally funded in 2017. Um, I started in 2016 and I was funded in December 2017 with my first NSF Includes grant. And that's when I started my access with the Y work, the Association of Collaborative Communities equipping youth for STEM success. So that grant um, really was a culmination of some work I had started in my PhD journey in terms of really understanding my personal um, affection for and as well as um, passion around working within the context of communities and providing resources as well as evidence-based models for engaging youth from historically marginalized populations in informal STEM enrichment opportunities. I used to have my own summer camp and after school program while I was working on my master's degree. And so this was a continuation of that work, but also not only for myself, but developing a model to be able to inform the development of summer camps and after-school programs that are evidence-based for other nonprofit and faith-based organizations. So that's my NSF Includes grant. Um, and here recently, um, I'm in now the start of year three, based on that formative work that I mentioned at the University of South Florida, building upon that work, looking at the rigorous math and science course taking, 
skills as well as um, working with and understanding the factors that have influenced the enrollment and persistence of students of color in STEM and computing, I was able to bridge together as well my dissertation work, looking at the counter life, her stories of Black women who have obtained their PhDs in computing education. And I was able to um, obtain um, an NSF career award focusing on um, the influence of community cultural wealth on Black and Hispanic women in the computing workforce pipeline. Well, you certainly have leveraged your findings from your research to inform practice. And I know that's one of your missions. Uh, that's what, yeah, one of the things that I brought you to share about is just how you've been able to merge scholarship and practice and be able to share not only your unique experience, but you've actually tapped into research findings to be able to create solutions as well as interventions and to transform communities. Yes, yes. It's it's formative work. I, as I mentioned, I know that I have a very aggressive um, goal, but I have been able to, um, building upon um, this work initially, I mentioned this uh, my dissertation work and the counter life, her stories. And that's a framework that I've been utilizing throughout my experiences from since graduating in 2016 until now um, to really understand those counter stories, those, and not just stories or individual narratives, but I want to understand the formative experiences um, and their retrospective ex lived experiences that have informed their persistence over the course of their lifespan. And so I, I utilize the life history method approach and conceptualize this counter life her story method to understand these women's hidden truths as well as the experiences that counter the majoritarian perspectives about their experience within STEM as well as computing. Um, and so really understanding what those hidden truths are has been also um, transformative for me. Um, in my dissertation, I stated how I was also unsilencing my own voice as part of this research because I started in the tech computing field and I, I've now transitioned to more so um, focused on the research side of it and really illuminating these stories. But to hear, and I've quoted this time and time again, one of my participants who had attained the PhD and she was in her master's program. Now, up until this point, she was a straight A student. She had a 4.0. She went to her advisor at the time. She was at a predominantly white institution. <clears throat> Excuse me. She went to her advisor to ask for a recommendation letter to enter into her PhD program. And that advisor told her, 
that you are not necessarily a PhD candidate, but you would be an excellent affirmative action candidate. You're not necessarily PhD material, excuse me, but you would be an excellent affirmative action candidate. And so, (laughs) of course, through her interview, as well as the others that I interviewed, there was not one dry eye as we they reflected on their stories that in some cases they had never shared before. And, and so being a part of that dissertation experience really moved me in a way that I have to continue this work, continue to illuminate these stories. And I'm not the only one that's illuminating black women and women of color stories in computing. But there is not an, there's enough work to go around for us to continue to illuminate these stories. But in addition to that, as you've stated, I'm also ensuring that the interventions, that the approaches that are developed, because I was a training program manager, have a lot of experience in technical training. And so quite naturally for me to develop curricula that's evidence-based, that engages youth and helps to um, rouse their curiosity and their consciousness about STEM and computing um, would be a quite natural fit for me, as well as I have a cognate from my PhD with Dr. Liliana um, Compost Rodriguez from the University of South Florida um, in evaluation. And so that also bridges in as well my work on on culturally responsive evaluation and collaborative evaluation as well. Now, the story you just shared about the woman, the African-American woman who was getting her letter of recommendation from her uh, professor was very saddening, but it also shows that the work is necessary. And as you mentioned, it's not... uh, only one story. It's actually representative of several stories. And so thank you for your work. Thank you for being an advocate and thank you for centering the the stories of these women, uh, these women of color so that their voices can be heard. And I would love to know what are some of your findings that may be helpful for practitioners? So maybe not scholars, but what is it that the person who is working in the tech industry, what can they do? That's great. Thank you for asking me that question. And so as I look at the access model that was developed based on the research of looking at those experiences from, um, in terms of their, the factors that have influenced their enrollment and persistence, in STEM and computing, as well as, in addition, those formative or lived experiences that informed their persistence. Um, I also have talked to, um, within the context of communities, understanding from their perspective, so nonprofits, faith-based organizations that work closely with these populations, um, understanding their perspectives about the STEM success skills, as well as STEM faculty as well. And so based on that, 
I have been able to develop this, uh, the access model and framework, and I train um, our informal STEM enrichment providers that are part of the access network on these guiding principles. And so the nine guiding principles have been centered around STEM equity, ensuring that we focus on a STEM equity lens um, to counter microaggressions, discrimination, as well as racial and gender biases. Um, in addition to that, uh, we focus on as well illuminating these counter stories, uh, counter life, her stories, as I've mentioned, or counter stories in um, contexts where we also include males as well. In addition to that, there is a focus on these organizations having an intentionality around diversity and ensuring that their organizations, that the individuals that are leading the organizations are reflective of the individuals within their organizations. So the diverse populations as well. There's also a focus on as well. There's other principles as a part of that without getting into all of that, but those that focus on the organization itself are related to, as I've already mentioned, and the last would be as well, ensuring that we foster an environment for self-efficacy and a sense of belonging to ensure that individuals have a supportive, inclusive environment to be able to persist and to be retained um, when we talk about retention um, within these diverse organizations. So currently these principles and guiding principles have been utilized for training informal um, STEM enrichment providers. We're also moving to, to training as well, um, formal educators. And, and then also my, my goal and intent is to continue to utilize this to train organizations, so the STEM workforce and industry um, partners that would like to understand how these principles can translate within transforming and diversifying their workforce as well. Well, you definitely have several tips, tools, and insight for practitioners, and you've already shown what you've done in regards to scholarship. Um, just want to clarify, when you were talking about your um, work recently, does that include the work with the, UNIS, the United States Department of Agriculture and that new grant, or is this new work as well? That's a great question. And so the work with USDA, what I've done is <clears throat> coming out of the work uh, rather as a follow-on to the work or building upon the work rather of the USDA grant where I focused on STEAM pathways. So that's really in that grant, I was looking at the agricultural USDA sciences workforce and how do we increase the representation of students of color in rural, in rural um, communities. And so in addition to that, um, I've already mentioned the NSF includes work. And so I merged the outcomes of those two um, paths. And as part of this work, 
I also formed a nonprofit organization. And so um, that was part of the NSF Includes work where um, I built capacity of a nonprofit I had started back in 2009, but I went through the process of obtaining the 501c3 and forming a public board. And, and, and so since 2018, January 30th, 2018, we've been in operation. And, and so the camps and the community work is being facilitated through the nonprofit. But we, I revised the name Access, where Access initially stood for, and the NSF includes grant, Equipping Youth for STEM Success. I have revised that to include agric agricultural pathways as well, where it's now for STEAM success. So it's STEM and agriculture while incorporating entrepreneurship and the arts. Um, so it's STEAM with two E's and two A's. And so that's how that work has formed together. And so currently with the current NSF career project, um, I am really just finished up our first pilot study and we're beginning to collect data at six additional institutions in the state of Texas. And so we're uh, going to be collecting data at other minority serving institutions, including HBCUs and other Hispanic serving institutions throughout the state. And so the, the hope there is to continue to understand those factors that have influence persistence for women of color in computing um, education and throughout, um, even upon, we'll have one year where we'll interview, we'll conduct a survey as well as interview individuals after they've graduated um, from their um, from their institution as well. And so, so I'm building upon the data set that I initially started with the NSF Includes project and continuing to understand, again, those factors. And, and then there's a comparative um, study where we have a national cohort using um, some AES um, data, secondary data set to understand um, how the Texas cohort compares to the national cohort. And so, um, so the outcomes of, of the new project will then also be utilized to refine the access model. So long answer to basically explaining how the current work will continue to inform these guiding principles, but we will revisit that and, and I'll refine the model based on the outcomes of my current NSF career project and train um, our informal and formal STEM um, enrichment providers as well. I can imagine that your alignment and consistency in pursuing a similar agenda in regards to diversifying the STEM workforce is helpful in being so productive. And I imagine we could probably actually do another show another interview <laughs> based simply on your management of time and and partnerships and collaborations and, and even grant writing. Yeah. But I know there are probably people who also would reach out to you because they may be interested in partnering with you, perhaps as a resource, as a as a consultant, as an advisor in, in to better understand this field. 
what is the best way that they can get in touch with you? Yes, they they obviously can look for me here at, at Texas State University. Um, that's one way to find me. Um, and But also, I am working on, um, I have shateashford.com. They can find me there as well. Um, you, uh, you can also follow me on LinkedIn as well as on Twitter at the handle um, Dr. Chate. And pretty soon I have a, a new domain out there, drchate.com. And that's just been an affectionate name that often people have called me as I've worked within these communities as well. And so you can find me at Dr. Chate um, on any of the social media platforms, LinkedIn and Twitter. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I hope our listeners stay up to date with you and your work, Dr. Chate. Before we conclude, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I just wanted to thank you again for this opportunity. And as I've mentioned different aspects of this work, um, I'm just really excited as well about the opportunities to translate this work as part of my career project into practice um, through, there's a couple of things I didn't mention. One would be um, in 2018, I had launched a Counter Life Her Stories conference. And so as part of the career grant, I was able to relaunch that. And um, the first year we had nearly 400 girls from across Central Texas come. Uh, we had another 350 or so come this year when I relaunched it. And so I'm really excited to continue that work um, and that conference. And basically some of the participants of my study, um, they have a chance to share their stories on stage, um, TEDx style um, in front of the, the girls and the girls can engage and, and share their thoughts on paper. And we capture those to understand just some of their reflections about hearing these stories. Um, in addition to that, um, there is also the Access Summit. And so looking forward to um, continuing the Access Faith and Community Summit. Uh, we have one coming up actually on um, April 14th and 15th um, here in um, San Marcos, Texas. And so that's really where we're bringing together the faith and faith-based and nonprofit and organizations along with our industry and community partners um, as well. And so, and governmental partners to continue to share best practices as well as um, share in dialogue about these experiences. So we're really excited as we continue to expand, we've brought on a new national partner the National Black Church Initiative. So Reverend Anthony Evans will be joining us this year um, from the DC area. So we're excited to continue to expand this work, um, not only here in Texas, but nationwide as well. Thank you, Dr. Satie. I appreciate your insight as well as your time. And of course, I'd like to thank the Samuel D. Witt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice at Rutgers University.